Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma. Before you begin listening to this episode of Model Mentality with Rachel Hilbert, I want to touch base on why we are releasing this episode in light of our current environment. Because of the recent call to action on mental health since the COVID-19 pandemic set in, we feel it's important and timely to release our curation of Model Mentality episodes with guest Rachel Hilbert in episode four, who speaks on our mental health journey from bullying to physical injury, to anxiety, to depression, and to more recently recently a disclosure of bipolar disorder on social media. We originally recorded our interview with Rachel in October of 2019, and at that time she indicated to us that she had just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but that it was too fresh and she was not comfortable speaking about this publicly. We respect privacy and confidentiality, and so we proceeded with the interview focusing on our history through 2019 on her experiences with anxiety and depression. More recently, Rachel disclosed on social media that she has bipolar disorder. In light of this, we were able to catch up with Rachel on August 3rd, 2020 and record a clip for you on her perspective as to why she decided to disclose her diagnosis. We hope that this interview sheds light on how stigmatizing living with bipolar disorder can be and how important it is to talk more about this mental health condition, which is common. This episode of Model Mentality will be presented to you in two parts. Part one, which will be Rachel's story from childhood up until 2019, before she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And part two, on her diagnosis of bipolar disorder. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Stay safe, healthy, and mindful. Please note that the contents of Model Mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about Model Mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Rachel Hilbert. Rachel got into the fashion industry at the age of 15, with her career taking off quickly and intensely. Her work has spanned from magazines such as Elle and Cake to working with brands like Urban Outfitters and Macy's, but she is probably best known for being the face of Victoria's Secret Pink for four years. Two years ago, Rachel went through three separate physical traumas that made it impossible for her to work as a model. She broke her foot, then both her arms at the same time, and later ruptured a tendon in her thumb. In today's podcast, we explore her mental health story, the effect of these accidents on her emotional and professional life, and her journey back to physical and mental well-being. 
All right, Rachel, so excited to have you here with us today. So I kind of want to paint a picture of who you were as a child, (laughs) you know, like growing up in Australia, like I wanted to be a scientist and then I became a model. So what did you want to do before modeling came along? I wanted to actually, because I'm obsessed with dance, I wanted to, at one point in my life when I was like a kid, I wanted to own a car dealership for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. Like, mom, I want to own a car dealership one day. She's like... Okay, Rachel. Do you have your driver's license? (laughs) Yeah, but like I don't drive. I don't know why I was thinking that. But you know, when you're a kid, you think of these like, oh, I want to be. I want to be an ambulance driver who drank coffee. That specific. (laughs) specific. I want to be an Applebee's waitress for like the longest time too. Also a vet. Um, But when I got older, I really wanted to go into dance and I wanted to be a rockette, but then I actually got too tall. Oh. (laughs) Because you had to be like 5'8", but I wanted to open a dance competition because, yeah, I wanted to do something with dance and then I kind of fell into modeling. Yeah. What sort of dance did you do? Because you were like competitive for like 14 yeah. years, right? I 14 years. I was, YouTube oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. Cool. Thank cool. you. Uh, yeah, I did like everything. I did jazz, tap, ballet, musical theater. Musical theater is my favorite, actually. It's like you lip sync and you do oh my God, Broadway, so which is like, obviously, I'm like doing the acting thing now. I'm modeling and you can express yourself in that sort of way, too. But yeah, I would do a lot of dance solos and compete on stage and just kind of express myself in every different way. So I did like all different kinds of dance. How did you find that your dance like helped you in transition into modeling? Like, oh, helped so much because like I knew body my body. Yeah. I knew my body a lot. Mm. So I kind of, just, kind of just like flow with it. I yeah. don't, I'm not really like static. I just like, it's like a dance routine actually when you're working. You kind totally. of just, you have to like just make it like a flow. Yeah. You like click into that headspace mm-hmm. and you realize you haven't thought. But in a way, modeling is like meditation for me. It's like active meditation because like 10 minutes can pass and I'm not thinking. Oh, yeah, it's no, like, totally. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's, it's definitely like that. It's like yeah. a, it's almost relaxing. Yeah. Um, what does your family think of you modeling? Oh, they're so supportive of it. They're yeah. like, they think it's like the coolest thing. I mean, we're all very like humble, cool. We don't like when I go home, no one acts differently t- towards me or That's any. So good. It's so good. I still have like really good friends. Like I, like I said, I have some really good friends from high school still that we all just like are in a group chat. We all hang out when we go home. We don't even talk about modeling or any work. We don't talk about work with anyone. We just talk about like our lives and you know, who are you dating? And like, you know, like girl talk. But um, they're really, my family is really supportive of it. And you know, I'm like the only one doing it mm. in my family so yeah they're i think they think they think it's cool yeah but they're they're so supportive yeah it really helps to have that sort of grounding home base like obviously yeah. i'm from much further away but whenever i go home like it's nothing's changed no nothing's one changed modeling with me nope. and like now my friends are like getting married and having babies but like yeah it's, that's happening it's right that's now too weird. wow really weird. i have a lot of weddings <laughs> coming up I'm like oh my god it's happening yeah it's like the next phase of friendships but it's like it's such a nice feeling because it's like these are people who knew you before modeling came in yeah and like you're still to to them, I'm still the like 14 year old exactly with a self cut mullet and braces. Yeah. Um, so, how was the transition from Rochester to New York City? Oh my God, I loved it so much. It was really? actually insane. Well, because I because it was expressive here. Yeah. It was so easy. I mean, at points, of course, I felt really lonely because making making friends in New York, coming here when you're 17, knowing no one, it's hard. Mm-hmm. But I'm a very kind of social person, and I'm just like you know, I'll just make friends. Yeah, I'm going to make friends. Uh, But I loved it because I I was able to express myself and not worry about what I was wearing or what I looked like. I could wear what I want and look what I want to look like Mm -hmm. and be my true authentic self. So I loved moving here. But my heart is always in Rochester because my family is there and good friends. I love visiting now. I love visiting. But um, yeah, when I moved down here, I was like, oh, this is it. It's like a breath of relief. This is it. (laughs) I loved it. What would what advice would you give um, that Rachel? So like seventeen, freshly moved to New York, with what you know now. 
to help it kind of transition into the modeling world? Don't force anything. Because I would try to force things to happen. Don't mold yourself into something that you're not because I had a little bit of that eating disorder situation and I had to force myself into this mold of what I wanted and should and was supposed to kind of look like. But now I'm just like, I can't do that anymore. It's not the way to live. So what yeah. that that's definitely what I would tell my 17-year-old self. It's like, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. But Would your 17-year-old self have listened? I, oh God, that's such a, it's so hard to say because there's so much pressure in that, in that situation. Try to just be healthy. Don't, don't get into the whole entire eating disorder situation because that really is a up journey right there. But I got myself out of it, actually. Yeah. It wasn't like too bad, but I knew it was happening. Yeah, when you have that level of self awareness, you can kind of be like, "Well, this isn't normal," and like, no, like I can't live. Thread. I can't live like this. No, it's funny. Like when my brain power came back, I like started studying and was yeah. able to like have a conversation. Same, like I went to school. Yeah. <laughs> like, I went to school it's and I was able to do things. Yeah, it's like I always wonder, like, why do we need to maintain that level? You know, I think like it's because when we were younger, we were still kind of kids, right? What would you want to tell the public about like who you are outside of being a model? Oh, I love that question so much. <laughs> uh, I'm like a totally normal chick. I well, actually, no, I'm not. I'm really okay. Yes, I am. You're pretty normal. I'm pretty normal. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty. I'm pretty normal. I like to do really fun things. I love to just like when I'm not modeling. I'm doing like, you'll find me like in the museum or at the theater or out with my friends having a glass of wine or like doing something eccentric or weird or just hanging out, reading a book, going to workout classes or, you know, just doing like normal things. You'll find me at the library sometimes. You'll find me at the bookstore. I love the library. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see me like in the most random place. Like, what are you doing here, Rachel? I'm like, well, what are you doing here? (laughs) I like to travel. So I like, I'll go explore different places and yeah, I'm totally normal outside of the modeling world Mm. I like that I'm like a very like I don't really have a filter either and people know that about me and that's the way I'm gonna live I think forever and yeah so when you meet me I might just be like hey what's up yeah Uh, cool what surprised you the most when you first started working as a model uh my career blowing up (laughs) (laughs) I'm like whoa I'm like this girl from upstate I mean how did I do this how how did this happen um just some crazy experiences like wow you travel a lot and you you do a lot for like yourself there's a lot of work that has I know it sounds like oh my god you have to do so much work to keep up with oh my god but it's hard work you gotta work out you have to like look good you have to you know kind of keep your composure but I don't really keep my I keep my it's always work but I don't really keep my composure now but (laughs) I'm just like I will voice my opinion um but yeah I think the biggest surprise was my career just like exploding at such a young age Mm. how did that impact you psychologically Sorry, I have to throw that one in there because that's fascinating. <sighs> well, it was like so euphoric. So it was like, it, I was so high. I was so happy. You know what I mean? But I also had these dips when I was like in there too. It, it might look like all beautiful and glamorous, but there's always, there's always like negatives and there's always, there's, it's not always positive. So what was hard about it then? Maybe your career blowing up and you having a lot Me of Me maintaining my self, I guess. What does that mean? And social life. Like me maintaining like my figure of the way I look, I guess you can say. Like my skin would be breaking out because I'd be really stressed out. Like, oh, shit, do I look okay? Like, do I look okay in the press or whatever? 
But I think that was probably the biggest thing. But besides that, I kind of just went with it. Um, I am super curious because I've been in the industry for now for 14 years straight and like the industry has changed. So hey, Rachel is just smelling around. <laughs> I was like, Did I have my deodorant? Like, I live across the street. I ran over here. And I'm like, no, you smell, smell great. Don't worry about it. You smell good. You smell good. Um, <laughs> no, That's I, me for you. I so, oh man, I'm completely lost. Basically, like the industry has changed so much. So much. Like, I, even since we first met each other in 2015. I like, found a photo of Bridget oh and God, I and I sent it to her the other day. I was like, look oh, wow. at this we photo. so little. <laughs> I would love to see that. So young. So young. Yeah. Um, so basically from 2015 to now, like 2019, 2020, like to me, the industry has changed so much. Tremendously. I feel like it's more, I, thank God, honestly. Yeah. I'm like this two year break. I've seen so much change there. It's, it's a lot more inclusive. You can be more curvy and be yourself and you have actually have a voice now. Mm. You can build a business off of your own brand. You can branch out and do different things. Like I'm doing the acting thing. I'm trying to, I'm going to start like a line soon. I'm going to do it like all these different things. You can do more charity work. You can do like, there's a lot more to it than just being like a mannequin, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because of the like uprise in social media? I think so. Yeah, it kind of gives you gives you the show your personality. You behind. Yeah, and it's become such a commodity now to have like, such a such a commodity. Like, I think I, I mean I'm like thank God, but like I have a lot of followers, which is really no, cool. And thanks I, thanks for everyone for following me because I'm like <laughs> such like a I'm like oh, okay cool like it doesn't <laughs> feel like you know when you have followers it doesn't like feel like anything differently, but. Um, but yeah, definitely having a reach and just, I like all my stories and I just be myself or my Instagram in general. I just show like my real self and not just the f- photos you see. Mm. That's great. Yeah. I think that's really powerful. Like the, the way the conversation has opened up to be more, like more diverse and more accepting of like all kinds of models from all walks of life. Yeah. Like, I don't think that we'd be able to have this conversation two or three years ago and be comfortable that like it wouldn't affect our career. Everyone, (laughs) everyone is, everyone can be themselves and anyone can be a model and anyone can make a difference now. Yeah. From like social media and just having a, a voice. You just have to do it. Like you're doing right now. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. All right. So I have my $5 million question. If you had 5 million followers on Instagram and you could say anything to them about mental health, what would you want to say? Don't be quiet about it. Talk Preach. to someone. Like I said, I said that to you previously. Don't be quiet. You have to talk to someone. Don't keep it to yourself or you will go insane. <laughs> <laughs> You'll go crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't keep it to yourself. Definitely talk to someone. You have to. Mm. Don't stay silent because silence is not the answer. Rachel, I was really struck, you know, in our meeting before this podcast about the history of mental health symptoms you've had since your childhood. Yeah. So, you know, as we speak, I want the listeners to learn a little bit more about that. And I think it's brave that you've decided to speak publicly about this. Um, so let's start there. Um, so tell us why. Why have you decided to speak publicly about your mental health experiences and why are you here with us today? So, I mean, after taking a two-year break, I took a total step back and like reevaluated everything. And I mean, I've been dealing with anxiety and depression since I was 12. And I think I was more just nervous because I felt like it wasn't a very, I guess like people didn't really understand it, but I feel like there's a lot more people stepping forward now talking about it. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to voice how I feel. And here I am. It's like my first time really talking about it. People, I mean, my, the people that are close to me know, like that are close to me that I work with and friends like no idea with this, but not 
like the public eye, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we will focus on is um, the last couple of years and what you yeah. experienced. But I'd love first to hear about your mental health symptoms. And I'm, I'm saying that in a clinical way, but in childhood. I know you mentioned behavior, Ooh, anxiety, okay. stuff. So what's the earliest of what you remember? Well, honestly, like in elementary school, I was like diagnosed with ADHD and all these different things. And I was really hard to focus in school. I had like these... Um, processing issues they would call them I would always be like in a psychiatric office getting like all these tests done because I just couldn't focus and I think it kind of just started then I was just a very high energy person and my brain would go like a thousand miles an hour and then it kind of just went into this like rage and just kind of shaking so really it started when I was like a kid and then I got diagnosed with like anxiety and depression when I was 12 years old, actually, which is crazy. What was your parents' view on what was happening or how did they manage it? Like, what do you remember? So what I remember, you know, like my parents both never dealt with that. And I was like the first kid, like my older brother never really had that issue. And it was just kind of me. And they would bring me to the doctor because they didn't really know what to do. So I would go to like a lot of psychiatric doctors, talk about it. And we tried out so many different, the medications I tried out, we have like two, three boxes full of different medications I would try out. Nothing worked. I would like go through these like anger rages. I would throw chairs. I would throw like bowls on the ground from like these medications and I would get super like high energy. But then I finally found a medication that really evened me out. And that's how like it settled me down a little bit. Okay, so it sounds like it took you a long time to find the right treatment. It definitely, for you. it's it definitely took a long time. Yeah, and so I know that you have specifically said you had a lot of fears and anxieties and panic attacks. So yeah, tell us how that affected you. You know, pre eighteen, pre eighteen, um, I would have like these anxiety attack, panic attacks that were literally out of nowhere, and I would. When he couldn't even leave my room, I'd have to go to the hospital a couple times just to calm me down. I like I would be like my whole entire body would just it would almost feel like I got like electrocuted or like tasered and I couldn't move my body, my mouth, nothing. Mm. And have these full blown anxiety attacks like in the corner of my room. My mom had to like pick me up and bring me to the hospital because she didn't know what else to do. Mm. And I would like be like, just bring me to the hospital. I don't know what to do. And it would be from actually nothing. But I also got like extremely bullied in school like in middle school like to the point of like everyone I feel like this is like the mean girl thing in middle school is like the hardest time yeah I think for like any child and kids are mean like really mean but um yeah I think kind of like went from there too I like didn't want to go to school I would have these like debilitating migraines I think because of like the anxiety and the stress of that too how you know bullying is something obviously that's been more and more in the press and we're talking more about it For yeah you, it wasn't really a thing when I was like it was never talked about when I was in yeah. school did you tell anyone about it yeah I mean like I had like I had this whole entire big group of friends in middle school and then they all for some reason just like bashed me and like threw me away and I was completely by myself I had like two really good friends but I would like tell my mom about it and we would go to therapy kind of talk about it but that doesn't really help a kid when you're in school dealing with this also we had like no phones we didn't have like anything to like really be vocal about it so it was kind of just like one of those things you just had to like persevere and push through but I think that kind of pushed me into like New York and exploring different avenues and everything like that and like really finding my path. And so, I understand yeah. that you've like done a lot of work on yourself, right? In therapy. How, what was the impact of bullying on you, you and your development? 
whether it's social development or on um, your I think actually it was a, originally it was, felt like everyone was staring at me like like who is she why is she like this da, da, da. and then I kind of just like took it and I was like screw all of you guys actually I'm gonna just like be myself and whatever like it is what it is and I kind of just like had this like switch of just like I would dance a lot too that was like my because like, art I, that was like my escape for everything and if I didn't like I would be in the dance studio for five hours after school and that was like my escape I would get picked up early from school to go to dance so okay. I think that kind of was expressing myself and then that helped me really express myself and just say screw you to everyone and I found a new group of friends yeah but it was the middle school that kind of like shaped me. Childhood shapes you as, a, as an adult for sure. Absolutely. What about high school? Like what was the difference between middle school and high school? Well, for there you? was a total difference. So like going into freshman year, it was kind of the same because people kind of have that catty attitude still, a little immature. And then when I was kind of going into 10th year, that's kind of when I discovered modeling a little bit, going coming down to New York. Junior year, I came down to New York and I completely changed. I changed my group of friends. And I like, because I saw that, because I lived in like a very you know, small kind of bubble, I guess you can say. And it's like a, a traditional American high school. You're walking around a circle, basically seeing the same people every day. Everyone wears the same thing. There's cliques. They're trying to like fit in. And I was, I've always been a floater, like with different groups of people. And coming down to New York and seeing that everyone can be themselves. I was like, oh yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I can go back and just be like, all of you guys really don't know what's going on. Even though, sorry, everyone. That's okay. <laughs> Honesty is good. Even though, uh, yeah, I just kind of like went back and I was like, screw this. And I would always be coming to New York and going back up to Rochester. Then I graduated high school early and the bullying kind of stopped. I think people started to respect the fact that I would like take my work really seriously at such a young age and then just come down here and go for it and see what happens. Yeah. And I was curious about that because, you know, how did other, from what you know, how did others' perception of you change as you started to do this? other thing, right? Which was really, modeling and honestly, leaving. I didn't really pay attention to anyone else. I'm like, I, this is what I'm going to do. Like, watch me. It's almost like, it's kind of, it's almost kind of like a, it's like the bullies that I had like in school, whatever. When I come to New York, it's kind of like a, well, look, look what I can actually do. Look, look what you can do. Even though like you went through all this horrible crap and you dealt with a bunch of internal and mental things, you can really just push through it and just go for it. And yeah, so you yeah. rose above it and I threw felt like it. I, yeah, that's yeah. what that, that's the correct term yeah. for it. I rose above it and threw it and now I'm well completely an adult now and that's yeah. out of the way. Well, and I would say that's that's a segue into the piece that I would really like to focus on. You had that experience of bullying and how you rose out of it. And then in the last couple of years, you've had a series of physical accidents. Yeah. So I, you know, like I came down to New York when I was 17. My career took off out of like literally nowhere. And I'm so thankful for that. It was like the, it, it still is like taking off. It's, it's really a crazy roller coaster. this industry, which is, I take it kind of as a blessing actually. Um, but yeah, so in 2017, December 14th, 2017, <laughs> I broke my foot. I mean, like whatever, you can have a broken foot. Three months, you can't walk. You're fine. I thought I was healed and I, literally I was out of the walking boot for, I'm not kidding, one week and I fell forward on black ice and I broke both of my arms at the same time. The same time. And like when it happened, because I'd broken my arms before when I was younger, 
Oh, so this is the second time you broke your arms. Oh, I mean, like, you know, like kid, like kid injuries. Okay. Like you have a cast on for three weeks and then, oh, you're healed. It's like a little stress fracture. But these were like, both my radiuses were completely cracked through. I, I like knew I broke them because I know the feeling, but I went a day without going to the hospital because I was like, I was in denial. I'm like, and, and this is not happening to me again, but <laughs> it happened. So I had put my arms back in place. Um, I had two like bent arm casts on and yeah, that kind of, oof, that was so hard because I already had a break from work and from doing everything for my broken foot. But then my mom had to come down, pick me up, pack up my whole entire apartment. I was probably home for like three months, which I haven't lived at home since I was like 17. So my parents were also like, holy shit, Rachel's home. Like how old is I? Like 22, maybe 23. And like, whoa, uh, our daughter's back home. We would take care of her. Like she's a kid. So I imagine just like having no, like not having two arms for a couple months. So I felt like I was healed. I came back down to the city, wanted to get back to work. I had two splints on. Mind you, you know, like it's kind of hard to model with two splints on. And also I was in so much pain that I couldn't even work out. I couldn't walk because the walking would like put me into debilitating pain. I would go back to the hospital a few times actually if I like made the wrong move because I felt like my bones are moving in my body. It was, oh, it's, I can't even explain the pain that I was going through. And then I came back here and I was on vacation for my birthday and it was, all, there was a residual. I had like a, a scar on my radius, if that makes sense. Like, so a scar on my bone, which makes like of it healing, but my tendon was rubbing over it. My big tendon, my EPL tendon, which is like your tendon that you use on your, on your thumb. It's like the main tendon that you really need on your hand. And I was on vacation. My left wrist was killing me for some reason that all of a sudden I felt this pop and it felt actually really good. But I was this sounds so euphoric almost. I was snorkeling and I looked down and I'm like, huh, my thumb's not moving and I can't really swim that well. And at the time I was with my boyfriend and I'm like, hmm, I think I really fucked up my thumb. And he's like, no, 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 I think you're fine. I'm like, no, 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 it's messed up. I'm like, I can't move it. So we were also like in the Caribbean. So we obviously didn't go to the doctor there, but I wasn't in pain. So I came back to the doctor here. They're like, oh yeah, you're gonna need a pin in your thumb. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I have to do another thing. So actually they did a tenant transfer in my hand. I was in a cast for like, oh my God, that took like five months almost to heal or even more. I was in a cast for like a splint cast for maybe like four, five months. And then I was training my hand how to like make it be normal again for like almost a year. I was in physical therapy. So yeah, I had like four serious injuries in a row. And the one that really like hit me the hardest was the surgery because I mean, your fourth injury, you're just like, is this ever going to end? Like I'm, I, when I walk now, I'm like so careful going downstairs, knock on wood. <laughs> I'm so careful going downstairs. I'm like, I'm like, don't do that. Like when I see skateboarders or something and they fall, I'm like, oh my God, don't break your arm. Don't do that. <laughs> but yeah. So how, okay. So you had these four injuries over a period so of time. Insane. All within model, two years. And you couldn't model the whole time. No. And you were at home. Yeah. So how did this affect, you know, given that you already had underlying depression and anxiety, what did it do for your mental health? So when I was the broken foot, it was kind of just like sitting there like, wow. Yeah. You literally, you feel fine, but you can't move. I kind of was just sitting there just being like, I feel like a slug. I was in New York at the time. I wasn't home, but the arms, I was home and I kind of just like zoned out. I would just watch TV all day. And, but then I really like took a di like a deeper dive into me as a person and what I meant to do and everything. So that's sort of kind of like, I'm like, I want to express myself more. So that's how I kind of got into acting too. 
once I like started getting healed. But the really the hardest part was when I got the surgery, I was actually back in New York and I couldn't sleep. I was so depressed. I wouldn't leave my apartment. I actually was living in Soho at the time and I terminated my lease because I couldn't even take the anxiety and all of the energy over there. And I moved to Brooklyn while I was still healing, like in a cast and everything. And yeah, it was just a weird, it was a weird time. It was like, a, it was a different, it was a different kind of feeling than it was when I was a kid. Yeah. Could you describe to others who may not have experienced how depression feels? Could you like use descriptive words to tell it us? It almost feels like, oh, wow, that's like, that's a, huh. it almost feels like, like when I was saying before, you feel like you're like got tasered, but you can't leave bed. You can't leave the house. You don't want to socialize. It's like this weird fog that almost comes over you when you know when it's foggy outside and you're just like, ugh, this is miserable or like a really shitty day out. That's what it constantly feels like. Mm. And you just can't get out of it. So it sounds like you didn't feel like yourself. I didn't feel like myself at all. Yeah. And you know, just for all of us, I mean, depression is not just feeling sad. Um, it I definitely presents. felt like useless. Okay. Sorry, I totally cut you off. No, no, go ahead. I felt go like ahead. useless because I couldn't do anything too. Like I couldn't mm. do my job. So I was just sitting around feeling like this useless, like hopeless person. I'm like, everyone forgot about me. Everything's done. My career's done. What am I going to like? Literally, I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to hop back from this? And I couldn't work out. I couldn't like be super healthy. Like I like, try to be and usually am. Mm. So I, I felt just like, oh. Right. So your sleep patterns have changed. Your energy had changed. So bad. Probably your concentration, as we spoke of before, your ability to function, your motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then did you ever have any thoughts like life is not worth living? Uh, Yeah. I definitely had some of those thoughts. And I was like, what the fuck is the point at this point now? I'm just like, oh, come on. Like, this is just like never ending. Yeah. But then I like saw this light at the the end of the tunnel once I started healing and everything. I was like, wait, okay, it's happening. Okay, I'm fine. So how did you pull yourself out of how did the depressive I? state? Once I, once I was able to, like, once I got, got my stitches out of my hand, I was like, oof, a hand. And then I, like, once I started being able to move my thumb and started to be able to pick things up, and I was like, oh, my God. Being able to work out again, being able to just, like, really feel like myself. Moving to Brooklyn has helped a lot because it's a lot more calm here. Mm. And When did you move to Brooklyn? Was I moved here last that? June. Okay. Last June. Yeah. And, uh, or last July, one of those months. And yeah, I kind of just like saw this light and I was like, okay, it's happening. I can like get myself back together. So I took, but I also took a little break mentally too, after I was healed, just to like recalibrate everything, center myself. I'm getting back into it now, you know, get healthy, be able to work out and not have all these injuries and all these other like issues that are going into it too. Cause it kind of dealt with a little bit of eating disorder as well, but like not super bad, but kind of, but now I'm like, got myself out of that. Started going to therapy, talking to friends, talking to, talking to family about it and just really owning it. And these acting classes, I know that sounds insane. These they've helped me a lot, really explore me as a human and express myself in a deeper way of emotions. Mm. And that kind of helped me realign myself too. Yeah. Well, it sounds like for you, uh, some sort of creative expression is, yeah, is a I have coping to. mechanism. It's yeah, like it art, is, art is everything to me. I've always been like that. I paint yeah. everything. My whole entire apartment is just like art everywhere. Art <laughs> it's and just dance. Like, yeah. yeah. Music's always playing. Music. Okay. 
always going to the theater, going to museums to like yeah. stimulate myself and inspire me. Okay. And so where are you now in your recovery process? I'm in a really, really, really good place right now, actually. I feel like I probably feel the best I felt like in a long time. I feel like very balanced out. I feel I'm going to therapy. I feel, you know, how, like there's a, a heartbeat line. Oh, wait, I know that's a really bad analogy, actually. I guess I'm like, okay, there's a roller coaster, right? I was like a really deep, dip I would kind of been like going up going up I'm like at this really good point that I'm kind of feel like I'm gonna like just kind of stay steady so I feel really steady right now so and good plateaued in a good way yeah I think so and it's also you know part of growing up and everything yeah so so what if you could just step back and have a bird's eye view you know on that experience where you had a lot of physical pain and physical oh, disability oh alongside depression and anxiety not being able to work <sighs> immobility right that's a lot of risk factors for mental health actually you know many people with physical pain yeah. syndromes have mental health issues um it puts them at risk so what have you learned from your experience well going back to that i wasn't really social about it either because i was going through like i'm like i don't want people to think i was like this insane person breaking my whole entire body like what is wrong with you but i wasn't so you really felt ashamed even i felt ashamed a little bit yeah I, um, I didn't post anything about it at all because I just wanted to be very private about it, but now I can talk about it. But looking back at it, sorry, what was the question? But looking back at it, what, yeah, what have you learned from the whole experience? Oh, right? um, live every day like it's your last, I guess. And really just, yeah, I like to say yes to everything. Well, not everything, the correct things I like to say yes to and expose yourself to different things. Don't just hide away. I know if you're scared, just say screw it and just get outside and walk around and just explore and follow your passion and follow your gut. I think that the following your gut is the biggest thing. And patience, patience. I learned so much patience because healing is patience just in itself. That was like, and I've never been a patient person. I've always been like, let's get going. Come on. And yeah, I learned definitely that was probably the biggest thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it sounds like, you know, you needed to take the time for yourself. Right? Yeah, and sometimes totally. that's important to heal, to do the things you need to do, which might mean stepping away from your career. I know you were forced to do that, but also just stepping away from things so that you can focus on yourself. Yeah, and I almost feel like I believe in the universe and all this manifestation. I feel like it was the universe being like, Rachel, you need a little break. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to you. Yeah. Let's take this break. How was anxiety during this, this two-year period? <sighs> It was up and down for sure. It was more elevated than, yeah, it was definitely more elevated because I felt like I'm like, okay, what's, what's next? What's going to happen? So it was definitely more elevated then, but it's better now. Dude, yeah. like I was sitting here listening, just like, oh my God, like I, I relate to so obviously not the injuries and like your experience is very much yours, but like the, the way you described depression and like anxiety attacks, yeah. I was just like, like you're almost tasered, right? Yeah, like you, and like I've never had met someone who's had an anxiety attack that's so bad that they can't use their hands. I, uh, recently, like, I got one too. Like oh. I, I sometimes get these. I, I've already still recording. Yeah, like we can talk about this. I mean, I recently, over, yeah. um, I've gotten these like panic attacks, like coming home from. Like I, this one was really recent. I was like flying, and I, I'm not an anxious flyer at all, but I was. It was really. It was bad. Like I was having. The, thankfully, I was with my parents. We were actually having a vacation. I was having to so blow, it was a panic attack, not an anxiety attack. So like full blown panic attack. I was crying. I was like, my whole entire body stopped and just like froze up. But one I had really bad was coming home from like a, I don't know what, what it was in a car and I was in an Uber. I was stuck in traffic 
and my whole entire body was, I couldn't even like my lips were stuck. Like my whole entire face was stuck. I was shaking, but I couldn't even breathe. The Uber driver was like, do you want me to bring you to the hospital? I'm like, no, just, I need to like breathe through this. And I was bawling and it was just, and I had to call, like I had to call my mom because she's always my whole entire life. She's always been there. Like through all of these, I'm like, mom, I, I can't talk. I can't do anything right now. She's like, Rachel, just breathe. And then once I started getting home, I was like better. And then I just. Yeah, they're, they're scary. They're so visceral. Like Nathaniel's been there with me. My husband's been there with me for like all of them. And I get, I get them all the time at airports, like to the point where like, I can't breathe. I'm crying. I can't use my hands. The amount of times, like he's asked me to hand him something. And I'm just like, yep. can't actually make it happen. I usually throw up as well. And it's like. Oof. Yeah, it's really Ooh, fun. That's, that's, that's fun. That's fun. Like, but it's like having someone to kind of pull you out of it has been so important. Like, yeah. I've had, I get them in hotel rooms a lot. Like I think like I had a really, really bad, like nervous breakdown in a hotel room. And ever since then I've been like really scared of hotel rooms basically. Yeah. And so like, it's getting way better. Like I can now be in them alone and not freak out usually, touch wood. Um, but you know, whenever I speak to my therapist or my husband on the phone, the first thing they do is like, bring my awareness to the room around me. And when I'm like unable to breathe and like throwing up, I'm just like, I don't want to describe the painting on the wall. Like, what are you doing? But then like, huh, that's being, actually a good point. Being pulled out of it and being forced to not identify with these like feelings of panic inside is really good at like bringing me back slowly. Mm -hmm. And it's like every time now, just from my own experience now, every time that I successfully work through a panic attack and not let it like completely floor me, like it's really improved the frequency and the intensity of them. Cause it's like, if one comes on now, I'm like, okay, I have to go through this. Like I can't fight this off. You can't fight it no. at all. And it's like, but going through it, I kind of learned that I can assimilate and keep going. Yeah. Cause it used to just like de derail my week. You know what helps me actually in panic attack if I, there's a ground, if I can just lay on the ground totally. and like center yourself and ground yourself. And then I put my hand on my chest really hard and just be like, okay, you're just deal with it. Just go through it. Feel every emotion and call someone. But sometimes, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to call anyone right now. I don't want to, oh, no. I don't want to put them through that either of like, no, are you okay? Should I come, should I come see you? Like, uh, uh. It's funny. I get like that as well. And usually it takes, again, my husband calling a person like he's called a friend who lives like four blocks from me when yeah. I was having one at night and he's like can you just go around like Bridget's freaking out and as soon as there's someone else in the room with me who's a friend like I've, ha I've had sleepovers on jobs with like hair and makeup artists like I've had me too yeah, yeah having someone in the room is so powerful because it just like brings me back to earth and they don't even have to be particularly skilled at dealing with like anxiety attacks no. it's just like not feeling alone in it is really powerful for me I haven't had one in six months, so. Yeah, and I think for those who may not have experienced it or for those who experience it for the first time, it can be so terrifying and upsetting. A lot of people, you know. People don't know just, what's happening. Exactly. Like. Or people think they're having a heart attack yeah. uh, and the fear that's sometimes there. Um, it can be so overwhelming, right? So, um, and of course, it's good if you feel like it's something medical or you should get a medical checkup. But, you know, I think once you identify what it is, what you said, Bridget, is really powerful that you can work through it, mm -hmm. right? You can actually learn a technique to embrace it. And there's some videos on this, which we can look through, but you l embrace it, you feel it, you kind of follow it in your body as it manifests because it can manifest in different ways. And you have to do a lot of self-reassurance that like, this is just a panic attack. This is going to end. Oh, Nothing's going to happen. I, yeah. I had one really bad recently. So I just like yeah. thinking of that, but it was like a four yeah. day prolonged to just oh, pure that, panic. That's severe. Yeah, it sounds terrifying. very severe. 
Oh, that was yeah. the one I had one of those that like preceded a nervous breakdown. And I think that it's like it's lingering now. For I was me. having a nervous mm. breakdown. Yeah, for sure. It's like fear from that, a fear of going back to that place. Same. But it's like I don't know, our minds can our minds create this and like our memories and our fears. And so our minds can get us through it as well. Mm-hmm. I kind of mm-hmm. am just like, all right, obviously I need to feel this right now. So I'm just going to feel like, bring it on. Yeah. I, I feel every emotion now. I don't like yeah. suppress it anymore. Yeah. I used yeah. to suppress it a lot. And what, that also takes a lot of practice, right? So you have to do it with yeah. a therapist. It's taken and like four or five years of yeah, intense exactly. work. <laughs> but for you, what do you do, Rachel, when it's so intense? You know, you, you described four days of severe anxiety. <sighs> that was, well, I had to go to the doctor. That was like, that was something that was not, yeah. I was not, like I had medication. I went off like a medication and that was because I didn't want to be, I, I didn't want to feel like a zombie on a certain medication. And I had to go to the doctor at that point and just be like, this isn't, this isn't normal. Like when you need doctor's help, when you need medical help, just, just seek it. Don't, yeah, don't wait. I mean, don't wait, literally don't wait. Cause if I waited right, right now, I would not be able to do this interview mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> yeah. And I would say everyone's experience of it is different and there's varying degrees of severity and really it needs assessment by a healthcare professional. It's true. It's it really point. is true. Like yeah. you need to go see a doctor. Yeah. And no one responds to any two medications the same. Like exactly. I'm, I had to try out two different antidepressants before I landed on one, which is the one I'm on now. And I actually feel normal. Yeah. Just like not quite as much of a mess. <laughs> and the other thing is some people may not need medications. Some people may need medications. Yeah, sometimes you just need to talk to someone about it. Cause exactly. I feel like for kids almost, if you're scared, because I want to just like say this to them, if you're scared to talk to your parents or like a higher up or someone in general, like if you think this isn't a normal thought, it is normal. And a lot of people deal with it. Even if you're like, I'm thinking like in high school, go to like your favorite teacher, go to, if you don't like want to talk to your parents about it, go to uh, like, if you're to your gym teacher, go to your gym teacher, be like, listen, I'm not, not feeling good. And go to the therapist at school, go to the principal, go to someone like you trust as like a an older, like an adult and talk to them and be like, I, something isn't right. I don't feel good. I mentally don't feel good. And they will put, put you in the right direction and help you out. Exactly. I'm so glad you're saying that. Don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. You cannot, you have to be vocal about it because if you stay silent, you'll live with it and deal with it in the, the darkest ways of looking at life. And you don't want to look at life that way. You want to look at life in a very beautiful way mm. and be optimistic about it and be happy about it, be excited about it not be fearful and push down almost from it. Yeah. When you push down like scary thoughts and feelings, like they imprint, I've found in my experience anyway, like they imprint in my psyche and then they come back five, 10 years later, having done push ups in the parking lot. Yeah. And they take me out in a whole special new way. It's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy. And look, a lot of people also have a tendency to push things away, compartmentalize, right? And I think, yes, it is so critical to like, let it come up. It's just a feeling. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to feel the feeling. And usually then the feeling disappears. It's energy, right? It comes up and it disappears. So it, it, it... uh, but I think there is like an initial fear for a lot of people to just like not feel the feeling because the feeling can feel so terrifying, yeah. right? So, and if if it feels so terrifying, then doing it with a therapist, right? Or a skilled professional is really the way forward mm-hmm. to help That's facilitate to that. Okay. So anything else you want to tell us as take home points? I think the, the talking to the like younger generation, it's, I know, I know a lot of people are, are dealing with it a lot nowadays I think it has to do with social media and you know phones and all of that because everyone's so connected talk to someone unrelated to 
the phone. Put your phone down sometimes. You don't need it in your hand all the time. I know I might feel crazy. Wow, I don't have my phone. I can't, I can't, I'm like talking for myself too because I mean, we're all have this phone in our hands. But taking an hour, maybe a day and just doing breathing techniques and taking some time for yourself, just find something that you're really passionate about too to take your mind off of all of this craziness of everything that's kind of going on in the world. Because it's a very high-paced world that we're living in now too. Yeah. More than ever. You are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You have been listening to our interview with Rachel Hilbert. So let's review Rachel's story. Rachel had a history of mental health symptoms from earlier on in her childhood, including a diagnosis of ADHD, anger, depression, and anxiety around age 12, and was subjected to bullying during adolescence. More recently, anxiety and depression in the setting of several physical injuries, including breaking both of her arms at the same time, led her to have to take a break from her modeling career and to focus on healing. She has been on the road to recovery after these challenges and is modeling again and brave to speak up about what she has been through. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are first, the early years of bullying, and second, the series of physical accidents that led to a period of depression, during which time she was forced to take a break from modeling, and third, the discussion about panic and anxiety attacks. So what about bullying? Did you know that 20% of students aged 12 to 18 experience bullying, according to the National Center for Education Statistics and Bureau of Justice in the U.S.? When I hear bullying as a clinician, I too in because bullying is a risk factor for mental health, and it's important to explore how social and emotional development is impacted. A licensed behavioral health clinician can help to do this. Bullying among children and adolescents is known to be linked to adverse health and mental health outcomes such as anxiety, depression, suicidality, and substance abuse, including smoking cigarettes. In Rachel's case, we know from her interview that she found a way to cope through art and dance as a way to manage through the adversity of what she experienced. Did bullying set the stage for her future experience of anxiety and depression, despite her resilience in dealing with it? It's possible. Moving on to her later years, let's revisit her more recent period of injuries. So how exactly is a physical injury a risk factor for depression? Think about it. In Rachel's case, her career as a model requires her to walk, to move, and to be free of injury, which affect her physical appearance and mobility. Her injuries rendered her unable to function as usual. She moved home, and the entire landscape of her life changed. To add to that, she was in pain, and it took time to heal and fully recover. This affected her deeply, and she struggled with depression and anxiety during this time. Physical injury and pain does not imply that depression will take place. However, because it can change the way you live your life, and potentially your identity, it's a risk factor for mental health. This is akin to an Olympic gymnast who breaks their leg, a singer who injures their vocal cords and needs surgery and can no longer sing, or a surgeon who breaks their hand and can't operate. All of these physical conditions are unexpected, potentially debilitating, and can impact one's career and lifestyle in a way that was never anticipated. We can't take anything for granted, and this is a reminder of that. And lastly, let's talk about panic and anxiety attacks. What is a panic attack? A panic attack is a discrete period of intense fear or discomfort, and with some of the following symptoms, heart palpitations, 
increased heart rate, sweating, trembling, and shaking. It usually starts suddenly and then subsides. Many people seek help from urgent care or an emergency room after experiencing this. It's different from an anxiety attack, which really refers to mild to severe anxiety and can present in many forms, both physical and emotional. Panic attacks are common, and if you experience them, it's a good idea to seek help from a behavioral health provider to see what's underlying this. It's when these panic attacks are recurrent and more frequent that it may be panic disorder, which affects about 4.7% of U.S. adults at some point in their lives. Bullying, physical injuries, depression, and anxiety attacks aside, Rachel is back to herself, modeling again, and has been on the road to recovery. She has been personally taking time to reconcile her experiences with her mental health story and to talk more publicly about it. You heard in the interview the power of social support, both for Rachel with regard to her mother helping her with panic attacks and for Bridget and how her husband has been a strong support when her symptoms are acute. Both have expressed that not feeling alone is important in getting better. This is why we are doing what we are doing. We are sharing these stories so that you, our listeners, know that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Hearing stories such as Rachel's highlight why I do what I do, to help people when they are most vulnerable, to help make a positive change. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. And now, please tune in for part two and our follow-up interview from August 3rd, 2020 on her bipolar diagnosis. So Rachel, when we first interviewed you in 2019, I know we spoke about um, what we would reveal and we decided with you to reveal that you had anxiety and depression and you did tell us about bipolar, but you weren't comfortable going into it. So can you tell us a little bit about what's changed, right? Because recently you revealed that you do have bipolar disorder. Yes. So basically when I was talking to you guys, I I think there's a stigma behind bipolar. Um, But I recently just got diagnosed with it in 2019 in December. So it's, it's also super fresh for me personally to say that I have this, saying that I have like anxiety and depression, like I'm used to saying that because my whole entire life I've had it. So I think I was a little nervous with that. And I know... I mean, I thought of people as bipolar as being maniacs, like actual maniacs, like shouldn't be around them. Their mood just like completely just shifts like one on the other. And that's a stigma I personally have. And I feel as if there's still that stigma out there. But I'm learning more and more and more people I know actually are bipolar and just do not talk about it. They just say they they suffer with anxiety and depression. I don't know why there's such this weird... Uh, you guys have to agree that that there's like this weird stigma around it more than more than anxiety and depression. I agree. And I think like there are some examples, you know, Homeland being one show, for example, where the lead character has bipolar. Um, but more, I think depression and anxiety are more socially accepted and more common. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing is, we need to talk about bipolar more. There are a lot of yeah. people in our society, you know, who exist and function and work with bipolar disorder. But it's one of those things that's more hidden. So I think that's why it's amazing that you, you know, have revealed this. Yeah. So I was kind of like, okay, well if no one's going to talk about it I'm like maybe I should just start talking about it and just like being like open about it and I actually got a really good response from it and it being looked at you know like it's not a bad thing and I've gotten um I've gotten medicated for it I'm really on a good I'm really in a good path right now I feel level I feel like under control I don't like have these crazy like 
outbursts anymore that I used to like panic attacks. Um, so like the medications really helped me and I've centered myself, you know, figured out what my meditation is, which is like running and just, um, I think that, and also with this quarantine with the mental health, it's just been like outrageous. So what was it about the current environment, you know, COVID-19 and sheltering in place? What was it about that that made you decide to talk about this? Well, I, you know, I was going on new medication. I've had some, I had some really bad episodes of me just like waking up super, 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 super anxious. And just having that behind me during the whole entire day and just having these crazy thoughts and just like being really erratic kind of. And then some days I'd wake up and I'm just like, I know I'm going to have a very irrational day, meaning irrational day, meaning, I don't know, because there's nothing to do when you're in your house, you know what I mean? So like, I feel like just mental health has been like heightened. So like irrational things like, um, my thoughts would be very OCD. I would like, you know, be hypersensitive to like everything and be wondering, like, for example, like where my boyfriend is like, and just kind of like being like, okay, where are you now? Where are you now? And just kind of like crazy. So a part of uh, the diagnosis of bipolar is that this is a mood disorder that has two poles, right? Mm -hmm. So usually one pole is depression and the other is mania or hypomania. So for you, tell us about the period, Mm -hmm. the upward pole, mania or hypomania, and what that felt like for you. It felt like a constant internal battle of just not being a normal human. Like, how can I explain this? It's so interesting. That's such a, that's such an interesting question. Actually, I really I like the question. I have to think of like the correct answer for it. Think of it kind of as like these irrational thoughts. Like you you think of maybe when you're like a kid or something. Like oh, what if I just run out in the middle of the street right now? What would happen? Or oh, I need to, I need to clean up and do all of this and get all this done in this amount of time. And I was talking to my therapist about it. So she said I was having an episode, and I'm like, am I having an episode? She's like, yes, you're having an episode, and I just couldn't control it. I'm like, I have to do this, 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 and I was just like all over the place. I didn't know how to get it all done, all this stuff. And like, and then I was just all of a sudden, like it would be, then I'd be like, I'm like, oh, I can go, go do like, so I, I, even before I was diagnosed, I would have like these, this sounds so bad, but this is like a big thing um, with bipolar is these like crazy shopping sprees. And I would kind of go do that. And I realized I've done that before. I'm like, whoa, that's insane. Or these just very irrational thoughts. Like when I got my dog, <laughs> like when I, I didn't just don't think things through. When I got my dog, I just like got her and didn't even think of it. It's like kind of like those. Yeah. It's like super irrational. Yeah. So we call that like just a, the clinical word that we say is impulsivity, Impulsive, right? So yes. people act impulsively. That could be yeah, making a decision and not thinking through it. It could be things that are more reckless, right? Like spending sprees where people rack up thousands and thousands of dollars of debt, you know, or, um, you know, many other types of reckless behavior. But impulsivity is a you know key symptom that can be a part of it. Yeah. So that was kind of my my ups, and it, it was just really bad because then the downs from that would be whew, bad. Yeah, exactly. And it can alternate with depression and um, hypomanic or manic episodes. So, so for you though, um, in getting that diagnosis, I know you said that you know it was a new diagnosis when we first sat down and hard to get your head around, but. Where are you now with it, you know, like in terms of having bipolar, living bipolar? Because you're clearly a high-functioning person, right? And a, su- a successful model. Um, yeah. So I'm extremely high-functioning. Um, I think I'm at a good place now. I'm in a good mo- – I'm like I'm in a good 
milligrams of, you know, what I have. And I've told people that I'm close with that I have this. I had a really bad episode. My mom was here, actually. She's like, I've never seen this before. She's like, what's going on? Like, I have bipolar. It's a thing. I'll be fine in a little while. So it's just like that I've kind of just like come to the conclusions of it. And I honestly just give it to the medication medication I'm on because I feel like even. Okay, no, that's amazing. I'd love to, I guess I'd love to know a little bit about the feedback you've had. Like, what has that been like for you? Um, I actually got, you know, like this, thank you for sharing, da, da, da. I got a lot of like, then I got some, like people didn't want to comment on it because it's like one of those things. Like I said, they didn't want to actually comment on it. They would message, like a lot of my followers messaged me on Instagram, kind of telling me their stories of everything as well. So I was like, maybe I should make my own Instagram. So I kind of made a mental health page as well. And so they, people like message me on there and tell me their stories or on the comments. But yeah, a lot more people came out like, oh, I actually had this as well. Thank you for saying something and trying to normalize it. But like not my comments because they didn't want people to see it as well. What's your what's the Instagram for the mental health page you have uh, so people can follow you? Let's talk about it. How are you really? So Rachel, how would you answer that question for yourself? Like, how are you really? Right? Because that's been going around with the mental health coalition. I think it was Kenneth Cole that started that campaign um but how would you answer that question um, and if you could like think about it in like this last six months context. Oh, last six months i have not been okay um right now as the best i've been in the last six months probably i've been really having some ups and downs of emotions and mental mental battles for sure um i mean this past six months i think for everyone it's been, it's been a hell of a ride to say the least uh yeah, I've had some really not the best ups, but I've had some ups and I've had some serious downs. But I good news. I feel like I'm getting better. It's really it's really nice to feel like I'm getting better. Yeah, and look, I mean, just to normalize it, these times are extremely hard. And I think one of the things is that, you know, what do people rely on, right, in times of stress for their mental health? A lot of it is like social connectedness, social support, your normal routines, things that we can't do or haven't been able to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so what you say, like a lot of people with pre-existing mental health conditions in this time of COVID-19 are getting really triggered, their symptoms are exacerbated, or you're just trying to cope with finding new routines. Yep. So. You know, you're not alone in that. And I think a lot of people have, you know, that experience. And I just want to throw that out there, too, that some people are having the other experience where um, COVID-19, you know, is actually making them feel like, okay, now everyone's affected by this thing, whereas I used to feel like I'm the only one affected. Yeah. And many, some people are feeling reassured. So the point is, everyone, there's a variety of responses, but I think it is a common thing, like what you're saying. So, you know, what does this suggest to me that this is really about the long game? Like, let's say COVID-19 is around for a year plus plus, you know, we really need to think about how to best structure our lives so that our mental health is protected. You know, whatever that means, whether it's finding, you know, a new routine 
routine, good coping mechanisms, exercise, yoga, you know, finding, mm-hmm. forming a little COVID bubble or a COVID pod with people that you can trust, you know, you know, their movements and you can really rely on them in person, you know, taking all the precautions necessary, of course. Um, and then there's work and economic hardship, but it's, you know, this is a challenge for a lot of people. So I appreciate what you say. It, it is hard. It's very hard. Yeah. I guess my final question then is, um, if you had 5 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about bipolar? That it's okay to be bipolar. <laughs> um, I would tell them it's okay to be bipolar and it should be normalized, less normalized bipolar. Um, it should be as normalized as anxiety and depression. That's literally what I would say. And I would, I would, I would say those words exactly. Let's normalize by being bipolar and being okay with it and not judging people on having it because you could speak to someone bipolar and you would never know. You would never know. Yeah. So let's normalize it more for sure. You are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You are listening to our interview with Rachel Hilbert. Let's review part two of Rachel's story. Rachel was diagnosed with bipolar disorder towards the end of 2019. And this was after a lifelong history of mental health experiences from ADHD to anger to anxiety and depression. However, with the new diagnosis and being on the right medication, Rachel has felt more level. But then COVID-19 came along, and as you heard in her story, the past six months have been challenging. This is the case for so many, especially those who have pre-existing mental health conditions. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are two things from this interview. First, Rachel's mention of the stigma of bipolar. And second, what bipolar disorder is and how it can present. First, let's talk about stigma. Rachel mentions that she herself had certain misconceptions around what bipolar is, and therefore it was much harder for her to come to a point of acceptance after she was diagnosed initially, until recently. Bipolar disorder is common and part of the human experience. In fact, an estimated 2.8% of U.S. adults had bipolar disorder in the past year, according to the National Comorbidity Survey. Despite how common it is, it feels to me that we don't talk about it enough. Sure, there are a few examples on TV and in film where a character may have bipolar disorder, but we've only scratched the surface and sometimes it is portrayed in a way that could be more stigmatizing. As a psychiatrist, I have had the privilege to witness and meet the breadth and depth of people that live and function with bipolar disorder in our society. Rachel is one of so many and her bravery in speaking up about her diagnosis is inspiring and needed to help normalize the conversation on this mental health condition. Second, what is bipolar disorder exactly? Bipolar disorder is best characterized by episodes of depression, alternating with episodes of mania or hypomania, in which often people can feel unusual shifts in mood, sleep patterns, racing thoughts, energy, activity and productivity, impulsivity, concentration, and in general, how they're functioning with daily tasks. Bipolar disorder can take a variety of forms, and often those who are in a depressive episode are more likely to seek out help from a professional. Bipolar disorder is usually diagnosed in the late teens or in early adulthood. 
And as you heard in Rachel's story, she struggled from a myriad of symptoms ranging from depression to anxiety to mood swings, and only recently culminating in a diagnosis. The way that Rachel's journey has evolved is not an uncommon story. What is important to note is that bipolar disorder usually requires treatment for the long term, but the good news is with the right medications, the right therapy, loved ones on board to help, and knowing your signs and symptoms, especially those at the beginning of an episode, it is possible to manage your illness and have a good quality of life with the right supports in place. I have utter respect for Rachel to take the time to open up with us about her recent disclosure, the stigma she has felt around bipolar disorder, and her bravery in speaking up about this important topic and human condition. Many people are affected by bipolar disorder and struggle with stigma, and we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thank you for listening to Model Mentality and our interview with Rachel Hilbert. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.